0: I guess the only regret I have is that just I didn't listen to myself and listen to my voice and my inner dialogue sooner in life.
1: What would you do all over again and why? I'm Natalie Carpenter, women's health and fertility advocate, dot connector, and former corporate brand warrior. Each week, join me in candid conversation with an inspiring public figure who boldly shares their real life stories of adversity, impact, and what they did next. And if they would do it all over again, knowing what they know now. Welcome to the All Over Again podcast. Hilary Phelps is a speaker, an addiction recovery advocate, writer, and holistic wellness coach. Her mission and purpose is to help other women find their voice and heal from anything that is holding them back from finding their purpose. Hillary lives in Arlington, Virginia with her son, Alexander. Hi, Hillary. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So good to see your face after all this time. Oh, you too. How are you? I'm good. It's always been on Zoom, though. Always been on Zoom as long as I've known you. Speaking of, I know that you are a PR maven, that you have a picture-perfect Instagram, that you've been on glamorous shoots. And that you're a mom, like me, because we did events consulting for Hey Mama for so long. That's where it kind of ends. I had no idea that you were battling struggles within your marriage. I didn't know that you were struggling with alcohol addiction. I didn't know that, P.S., until I saw the Today Show piece that Michael Phelps is your brother— not that that matters, but I didn't know about any of these things. Really, we'd always talked about motherhood and the trials and tribulations there. And so it was just eye-opening, right? We all have our secret struggles. So with that in mind, and with all that you've been through, looking back, what accomplishments are you most proud of today?
0: So I have three, I think, that I would think of. One is sobriety getting sober at 29, we can go, you know, more into that. But for me, it was really hard to stop drinking. And so because it had become such a huge part of my life, it was the thing I turned to in all situations. And so getting sober and staying sober for 15 years is the biggest accomplishment in my life, because without that, nothing else matters or would happen. After I got sober, I did an Ironman in 2010. So it's 140 mile race, 2.4 miles, swim 112 mile bike, and then a marathon. And up until that point, I'd never run more than 10 miles. I didn't even own a bike. I hadn't swam since college. I was a swimmer in college. And so I trained in eight months for that, which is just crazy. And then my son. And I would say my son is, you know, before the Iron Man, but being a mom, as you know, Natalie, it it changes you in so many beautiful ways. And I think being a mom kind of rebirthed the real me because I have this little person that I'm responsible for. And I would never want anyone to hurt him or, you know, nothing bad to happen to him. And it really caused me to start looking at the way other relationships in my life and and the way, you know, I'd never let somebody hurt him. Why was I letting somebody hurt me. And so I think those three things are really key pillars in my life of things that I'm really, really proud of.
1: And you should be, you should be so proud of each and every one. And talking about your son for a moment, it's amazing, right? How our little people feed off of our energies and they know where we're at, even though they don't know where we're at, but they feel something. And so it's so important to be able to show up for them but that means showing up for yourself. And and I'm I'm learning this too. With grief has actually taught me that. We can talk about that in a little bit, but there are th- ways in which if we're not fully present, it affects them. And it affects our relationship. So I I love that you shared that. What would you do all over again or not do all over again and why?
0: It's like a catch 22 because I thought about this question and there's kind of like two truths to this. One nothing because right now is the happiest I've ever been and the most grounded in my human and in my person, like I've ever felt in my life. So I'd say nothing, but in the same way, I would say, find my voice and use it. That's the one thing that I wish I had done sooner or, you know, have done, but everything in the past, like kind of took me to that point. So it's like this catch 22 of, you know, if I'd found my voice early, I wouldn't have had these experiences, but without these experiences, I wouldn't have found my voice. And so I think The only regret, I guess the only regret I have is that just I didn't listen to myself and listen to my voice and my inner dialogue sooner in life. Because I always let other people's opinions like come before mine, you know? I cared about what other people thought like on social media or in school or it was always about that external appearance. And for me, that's what kept me drinking too is that desire to like look good on the outside and didn't matter what I felt like on the inside. Yeah, long-winded answer to that.
1: <laughs> it's a beautiful answer. And and it's such a female thing too, I, I find, right? We are such pleasers. It's like we are conditioned to be and present a certain way. And it's kind of amazing, these new movements that are showing younger women that they don't have to do that. I'm envious, but maybe maybe we had to go through all of these things that we had to go through to show up in the way that we can today. And the fact that you did today and, and so loudly, which is so beautiful.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. It's like all those experience brought us to this moment today, you know, and I look back at even like people that I've met recently and it's like, well, I wouldn't have met them if I hadn't met this person. If I wouldn't have said yes to this, I wouldn't have gone there. And if I wouldn't, you know, and so it's like every little thing that we do takes us to the next moment. And within that moment, you know, it's almost like a yes, no chart. Okay, yes, I like that. No, I don't. And it's like the scariest thing is that the beauty is in the mystery of the unknown. But that's terrifying. And so just continuing to show up and just say like, yes, okay, yes, yes, yes. And and keep evolving that way has been beautifully terrifying.
1: <laughs> the constant catch-22s, right? Yes, yes. So can you take us back to the defining moment When you knew that you had to seek treatment for alcohol use disorder, by the way, alcohol use disorder is a new term for me. So I would love for you to shed some light on that too. So when was that moment that you felt like you had to seek treatment for alcohol use disorder and also tell me more about this new name or maybe it's not new. I just hadn't heard it.
0: I'll start there just for a second. So because alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder is pretty new. I think alcoholism, alcoholic has a really negative connotation and people think of it as a bad thing or a disease of willpower or lack of willingness. Even terms like, you know, I say, well, I'm Hillary, I'm an alcoholic. It's like, no, I'm Hillary. I'm in long-term recovery. I'm long-term sobriety. Like just changing the vernacular around it. And I think changing the vocabulary that we use, it's like telling your child, giving them a negative versus a positive. Like- I really love the way you did that think you know, thank you so much versus like, don't do it that way next time. You know what I mean? It's just like the negative, the way we talk about things, I think impacts the way people see them. And so alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder, it also shows that it's a disease, that it's not a choice. And so I think it's a really great thing. That's something that they've started using. They, you know, the industry recovery and addiction space have started using that terminology more broadly. And I love that more people are using it too, but it's not very commonly known.
1: Thank you for sharing that. This is important for us to know.
0: Yes, because without changing the perception and the stigma, we can't change policies. We can't change the way people are being helped and, you know, recoveries offered and treatments offered. And so I think starting in that really small way that we talk about it is really important. And so thank you for asking about it. I love that. And for me, the moment was like, I mean, look, I didn't know because I drank wine like I was a woman, I drank wine and I thought it was cool. And I would drink martinis when I went out and I would drink champagne. Like I drank classy drinks, you know? So I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't have a problem because people who are alcoholics and addicts drink out of a paper bag or live under a bridge. Like, because that's what we, up until that point, that's what kind of had been portrayed in media. And that's what we'd seen as, you know, a depiction of somebody that was struggling with addiction. And so it kept me out for a really long time thinking like. I just like to drink, (laughs) which I did a lot. But what I eventually started realizing was I was making really bad decisions and really bad decisions, meaning I would be at a bar. And the next thing I know I would wake up in my bed the next morning and be like, I don't know how I got here. Did I drive? Just those things started to feel really scary. Like, and especially as a woman and You know, I started experiencing things like I'd go the wrong way and I live in Washington, D.C. or outside of D.C. and I'd go the wrong way on the subway. If you go run one way, it takes you to the suburbs. If you go the other way, it takes you to the inner city in Washington, D.C. As a young woman, it's not a place I'd want to go. And I ended up in the other way. And I only knew that because the next morning I got a phone call my cell phone from someone that said, just wanted to make sure you got home okay. I put you back on the metro when you ended up out here. And I was like, I didn't even remember it. So things like that started feeling really scary and I would hide it. Nobody knew. I mean, maybe they knew I drank too much, but nobody knew those things because I was ashamed by them. And when we're faced with those things, you know, that feeling of shame, you can either change, you know, make a change or you can keep bearing the shame and move forward. And I just kept bearing the shame and moving forward. I mean, people were like, she drinks at family functions and she gets really drunk, but they didn't know I was drinking at home alone after I got home from work or there was blacking out every time I put alcohol in my body. And so for me, that tipping point came when I was in a relationship and this guy had come from an alcoholic family and he saw it, you know, firsthand we were living together. And he's like, if you don't get help, I'm going to go and tell your family how bad it is. Cause it's really bad. It was exposing my shame, you know, and I didn't want anybody to know. And so I was like, okay, fine. So I'd, I went to 12 set meetings. Well, I went to a therapist and kind of went in and out of those and I just wasn't ready. And so when I checked myself into treatment, it was outpatients called IOP intensive outpatient. You go, so I go after work, which none of this I knew because <laughs> I knew nobody. I didn't know anybody in recovery. I didn't know anybody that had gone to addiction you know, to treatment. So I was like, any meeny, any money, this place is close. Let's go here. And I called them and it was an outpatient. So i go to work and then at five 30, I would check into rehab And from 5.30 to 8.30, we would have treatment. And meaning what that looked like was like we would check in first hour, second hour, split men and women because men and women have different concerns and issues when it comes to addiction and how they feel versus how they manage it and versus how they manifest it outwardly. And then third hour was like feelings management, because basically when you start putting alcohol in your body, you stunt your growth. So I was like 14 years old in a 29-year-old's body.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. Making really bad decisions, really immature. And so I didn't know any of this stuff. And it surprised me that other people were actually born with this innate information. (laughs) I was like, wait, what do you mean? I mean, I was walking through life with my fists up and like walking like my jaw was so clenched. I was terrified all the time. And I didn't know I was terrified until somebody pointed it out. And so I needed that extra help to kind of help me identify these patterns. And so When I went into treatment, I didn't know if it would stick. I just wanted to get this guy off my back. I just didn't want to be ratted out. And what I found out was that there were other people like me talking openly about their struggles. And for so long, I thought I was a bad person because I couldn't stop drinking. And I didn't want to tell anybody and ask for help. Because like you said, like, I just kept it inside. If I can put nice clothes on and put a smile on and my hair looks fine and I took a shower that morning, then I'm a good person and I can get by. It didn't matter that I was like burning alive on the inside. And so I just kept functioning. But what that taught me was that there were other people out there that looked like me, that talked like me, that came from good families that struggled with this disease of addiction.
1: The burden of shame is so heavy. And it's amazing that this person, your ex-boyfriend, showed up in your life to show you, right? Because we're all again, condition. you go out, you drink, and you have a good time. I don't have a problem. I don't have this going on for me because I look like this. I don't look like that person carrying the brown paper bag, hiding the alcohol. I'm not hiding the alcohol under my pillow. I'm doing it. I'm drinking it myself at home whenever I feel like it.
0: Right. I wasn't drinking in the morning before work. I did never got fired from a job, you know. I hadn't been arrested, like all those things. I was like, "See, those are the people that have problems. The people that drink before work or that sneak vodka in water bottles." You know, like the movie "When a Man Loves a Woman" was one of my favorites because Meg Ryan would. I was like, "Well, I'm
1: not her. Right. I'm good." Because society depicts it a certain way. Society depicts alcoholism, right, rather than alcohol use disorder it's such an eye-opening term for me. So you've shared that you've had thoughts that being sober would adversely affect your social life. Can you tell me a little bit about those fears and if you felt like they were founded at all? So, and this
0: is my personal experience, and everybody's personal experience with addiction is different in some way. I mean, it all manifested that you just can't stop, you know, but... For me, part of those voices in my mind from an early age told me I wasn't good enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't funny enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't enough in any capacity of my life. I was a straight A student. I was the fastest swimmer in the country. I had friends. So my inside did not match what was going on around me. And that was really hard to, to justify. So that feeling of not being good enough was really hard from an early age. And so when I got sober, it still felt... Like I was going to be judged for that. And because look my inside, I just want to be liked. I want people to like me. I want to be accepted. And I think humans in general want to be loved, appreciated and seen, right? Like everybody does in, in some way, shape or form. It's just the manner which you go to like to get it. And for me, it was so important to me having connections, having relationships, like it's the core of who I am. And so I was so terrified that if I shared this really vulnerable thing about myself, that people were going to talk behind my back or they were going to be not want to be around me anymore. They were gonna think I was a bad person or that, you know what I mean? And what I realized is that was just coming from fear. And faith and fear hold exactly the same frequency. And what I mean by that is both unknown. We can't see faith and we can't see fear, but we can feel it. And so I had a choice whether or not to live in faith and live in or live in fear. And in that moment I chose to have faith that one person was going to hear something I was going to say and they were going to say, oh my gosh, me too. I only drink wine. Oh my gosh, I'm a mom. I'm a single mom. I'm really struggling. Or, oh my gosh. And that one person would seek that was literally it. One person. Because that one person changing a pattern or changing a life, especially as a woman and as a mom, has the ripple effect that goes out significantly. It helps her child. It helps her work. It helps her relationships with family. It helps the way she shows up, everything. And so I jumped. Jump and the net will appear is what I was like, all right. And so a friend came to me and, and he knew I was sober, went to college together and was like, do you want to share your story? I just ended a, a marriage. So it was really hard. And I and I was like, you know what? Why not? Yeah, let's do it. Because in the marriage, I'd been told everything that I was terrified of was that you don't tell anybody this. You keep it a secret. Don't talk about it. People will judge you for it. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to share because that went to everything I was terrified of. And so when that ended, I was like, why not? Nobody sits in a sandbox and says so they want to be an alcoholic or divorced at 44 years old, ever. And here I was, you know, and it was like, what do I have to lose? <laughs> and it was the opposite. And what I found was that the message resonated. It was what people needed to hear, you know, because from that sharing, I got messages from friends who said, I'm really struggling. Can you help me? Like, what does this look like? People who said, Thanks for speaking out on this. My brother committed suicide because he was an addict. My mom was an alcoholic and struggled my whole life. Your son is so lucky that he never has to see you in that space. And I had 15 years behind me. So I figured I had a little bit of a buffer. You know, I'd done it long enough where it was like, I mean, three months is hard. So kudos to anybody that has three months, one month, two days, any of that. But at 15 years, I was like, okay, it's a little bit of time. I think, I think I'm comfortable enough in my skin and my space of sobriety to just dip my toe in the water and just share you know what? I've been, in, I've been in recovery for 15 years. And the feedback was incredible. And the support was amazing. And that was almost a year ago. And it's changed the trajectory of what I do for a job. It's changed my life. It's changed the people I've met. I mean, it's been really beautiful. I'm really fortunate.
1: Do you feel so much lighter?
0: Yes. Yes. Because I felt like I was straddling. Like, I can't say this to this person or I can't say that. And now it's just like, it's just me. It's just me. Like, I don't have to be bifurcated. One person here and one person there. It's just me.
1: And that's really hard too, that for so long, your fears were founded, so to speak, through your partner, through your husband, who you were looking to relying on as being your supposed to be better half, right? Like, that's why we choose our people, right? We try to find a partner that helps us be our best self. And my heart is with you that you had to endure that for so long. And I think it's so beautiful that you've come out to share your story. It's so profound. And it's so amazing that you're also bringing so much light to other people, because there may be a lot of other people out there that will never share their story, but now have the confidence or the, the knowledge to be able to show up for themselves and seek treatment. 100%. You
0: know, and two things. One, like he was operating from a space of fear that goes to the faith and fear. Like he was so worried that what people would think of the family or him. But then as far as like recovering out loud, it's like my friend Jessica says this so beautifully. It says we recover in public and I'm going to butcher it. um, So those that are healing in silence can keep going. So exactly what you said. So people that maybe aren't ready to share their story or aren't comfortable or still have a little bit of shame or fear can say like, okay, well, I feel a little better because she's out there talking about it out loud and I don't feel alone.
1: That's the most important piece. Yeah. You were never alone. And now so many people don't feel alone because you shared your story. Thank you. My gosh, of course. I mean, I'm so grateful you're here today. Interestingly enough, again, this was news to me that swimming runs in your family, like you and your brother and your sister were all swimmers. I'm curious to know, did alcohol at all affect that trajectory at all for you or was that more of a recreational sport for you
0: yeah 100% affected it so at seven I started swimming year-round that was the summer my sister was five my brother was born that summer and I loved it I loved swimming I loved winning I loved the competition and I said to my mom and I was like I don't want this third place trophy I want the first place trophy and she's like okay well first place trophy means you need to swim year-round I was like cool sign me up and so I did And I started swimming year round. I loved it. I was the fastest swimmer um, in the country at age 11. I was a distance swimmer. I was a mile swimmer. My parents got a boundary exception so I could go to a different school to be closer to the pool. My dad would drive me at 3.45 every morning. We'd get up, drive the hour to the pool. My parents sold their dream house that they built in the woods so we could move closer to the pool. Like swimming was really important. And and my parents were so instrumental in helping us achieve those goals that we set out for. My sister came along next. My sister was third in the world at 14. She was Olympic hopeful in 96. She ended up having a stress fracture in her lower back and missing the team. And that was a really sad moment because she had given up everything for her swimming. You know, then my brother came along, didn't want to get his face wet <laughs> and became like the greatest swimmer of all, the greatest athlete of all time. My opinion, but is like, you know, the greatest swimmer of all time. But for me, hundred percent, because I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol and stopped caring about everything else that's the issue you know it just takes place and and that's the only thing I sought out it's the only thing I wanted to do and so I was still good enough to get a full scholarship to swim in college which was incredible and I graduated in four years but then I asked myself right that catch 22 it's like well what would have happened if I hadn't started you know if I had put more into my studies or had put more into my swimming like where could that have taken me but I guess there are other lessons I had to learn
1: <laughs> it's amazing how this path has taught you you're facing it all again maybe this all happened for you to be able to show up in the way that you are now, right? To be this light for other people. And and I think that's so beautiful. And I you know I had to ask the question about swimming because I read somewhere that you had a history of being a competitive swimmer. And I thought, wow, another thing I did not know about Hillary.
0: It's so funny because we only know what we know. And I figured like everybody knew everything, you know, and it's like, I guess not. But yeah, yeah, I swam my entire life and... I still, I can't get back in the water today, but it's too much. <laughs>
1: I'm sure you still swim with your son.
0: Yes, we still swim. And I like love going swimming for fun. We go to the lake, we go to the ocean, all that stuff is great. And like once I get in the water, I actually love like taking a couple strokes and swimming. It feels like home, but it's like that push pull of, I don't want to get up at five o'clock and go swim <laughs> or I don't want to compete. Like it's just, it doesn't feel comfortable anymore. Like it
1: did. Yeah. Right. It's not your place anymore. It's like a home that you like to visit.
0: Exactly. It's my my vacation home. Yeah. I like like, that.
1: Swimming is your vacation home. That's awesome. (laughs) So speaking of swimming, you've credited your brother, Michael Phelps, and his advocacy of mental health as inspiring you to share your story, or I should say your secret and recovering out loud. What was the moment when you said, I really need to tell my story too? So I don't think it was as much as like,
0: I didn't do it because he did it, but I felt less alone. I felt less alone and more comfortable in sharing because he was so vulnerable. And what that led me to believe is that what if someone else was looking at me, not, I am nowhere near as powerful and instrumental and influential as, as Mike. And I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is like, if I looked at him and felt comfortable sharing my story because of that, what if there was someone else that was comfortable in sharing their story, or at least entertaining the thought of looking at their sobriety in the same way that I looked at his strength and sharing his story. And so he was so vulnerable and open. And I was like, this is what we need to heal. Like, this is how I feel like people heal. And we heal in our stories and we heal in our recovery together and we heal in community. And so if I could help somebody else feel less alone, like he'd help me feel less alone in my journey, that was enough for me to open up and share my story of hope in hopes that someone else could hear something in there that resonated with them and have them look at their own challenges again like whether that's divorce addiction shopping eating like because basically at the end of the day a lot of people use an external thing to heal an internal issue a lot of people especially after covid it's like the sadness disconnect um whatever so what can i do what, if man like i can go shopping i can drink i can eat i can have sex i can look at porn i can go whatever that is to help fill this like emptiness inside of us For me, I just wanted to be able to help people see that, like, they are valuable the way that they are.
1: And it's true. There's always a distraction. There's always a distraction. And I think that's a really good segue into grief, right? When we talk about grief, you lost your dad recently. I lost my dad recently. And I think when you are dealing with grief, right, you've got this, this immense amount of stuff and, and, So many things that you had never, or at least for me, that I had never thought about came up, and I really just wanted to distract myself. I wanted to distract myself and find other ways to distract myself. That felt more comfortable than facing the harsh reality. I mean, granted, there was a bit of a lifetime TV drama that we will talk about another time, but it really felt like this grief was all-consuming the grief and and all of the things that we use to cover up our grief, I'm curious to know, as you were grieving, you were grieving the loss of your dad, you were grieving the loss of your partnership with your husband, did alcohol play at all a factor for you? I mean, did you think about it? Did you get tempted?
0: Yes. And normally, you know, it had been a really long time since I'd thought about it. Like It just doesn't come up. Because I have the rituals, I have the things I do, and I, I maintain my, my sobriety on a daily basis. And there are things that I do every single day to like fill that cup up so I don't think about alcohol or drugs as a way to cope. And so, you know, last year I moved, I launched a business, ended my marriage, and lost my dad. Four of the top five things that are stressors in any person's life happen in one year. And I thank God every single day that I had 15 years of sobriety because when my dad died at the end of last year, it's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't care. Like my, my dad was my person. Like my dad saw me through everything. My dad had nothing but unconditional love. My dad supported my recovery. My dad supported me throughout the divorce process. My dad came down and spent time with my child. My dad would make my, my son homemade baby food. I mean, like, and he didn't wake up. So it wasn't, he wasn't sick. So when that happened, that's all I wanted to do. But I also knew that it was not going to bring back my dad drinking, going to drink. I mean, I wanted to just numb out. I wanted to do a lot of things and drinking was one of them. (laughs) Like I wanted to do anything in my power to just escape and numb. And so I didn't, I didn't drink. I mean, full transparency, I bought cigarettes, which I had. like I smoked and I was drinking and it had been a really long time I was like I want to do something back like I need to do something and you know when I was cut I used to cut myself when I was younger like cuz the physical pain was better for me than the emotional pain of drinking like all of these things so I was like that's not an option drinking's not an option pardon the crudeness, sleeping with a random man's not going to fix it. Doing drugs, that's not going to help. Like all of those things are going to lead to more shame. And it's just going to make me feel worse. like I knew this. Right. But like in my heart, I was like, I just missed my dad so much. And so I went and I bought cigarettes and I smoked for 10 days and then I stopped. Like eventually I'm like, this is disgusting. <laughs> like I remember, you know, and I, and I stopped, but I needed a way to process it. And that helped me in the moment. But like, yes, yes. And I didn't drink. And what I did was I went to I work with a treatment center in Maryland. It's called Ashley Addiction Treatment. I went up with my friend Charlie Engel. We drove up together and I shared my story in a meeting of people who were in treatment for 30 days or less. So people who are really struggling, because those first 30 days are hard. I mean, at any point it's hard, but those first 30 days, you're just like your whole world's upended. And so we Charlie and I drove up and I shared. And I was like, look, at five years, I was diagnosed with depression. Ten years, I had my son. At 15 years, my dad died and I got a divorce. And here I am. They're the highs and lows. And we ride the waves. But eventually, if you do it well, the the waves are smaller. The pendulum swing is tinier. And it doesn't feel as drastic and like kick me off course. And so the fact that I had all these tools in place, prayer, meditation, friends, community, 12-step meetings, all of those things, like those are the things I could rely on rather than, you know, going back and picking up a bottle of wine or two or three to just numb it because grief is going to come out eventually. It's got to work its way out. <laughs> so if I keep stuffing it and stuffing it, like I'm going to be in a grocery store and like kick over a magazine stand or something, you know what I mean? Like other will just, <laughs>
1: <gasps> okay, wait. <laughs> yes. Yes. And let's be honest. There are definitely some moments of like, whoa, like crazy, like I didn't kick over a magazine stand, but I, I hear you. I sadly, there were a couple people, you know, in my wrath direction. So I, I feel you like that was the lesser of all the evils. smoking cigarettes for 10 days. And I love that you shared your story and reminded yourself of your path. Thank you.
0: And I had this really nice guy came up to me after and handed me a note because they, you know, you don't have phones and, and treatment. And so he writes this note and he hands it, he turns it to my friend, Charlie, and Charlie hands it to me as we're walking out. And I opened it. And the guy said, I'm in mean, summarizing, you know, I had nine, I had nine years, I relapsed. And this sucks. I was going to leave treatment tomorrow. I don't want to be here. But your story is going to help me stay. So thank you for that. And I was like, that's one person. That's one person that decided to stay the other, you know, he'd been there for five days for three more weeks. And get the help that he needs to stay sober for him first and his family and his community.
1: Did that reinforce for you why you show up?
0: hundred percent. Yes. And I have it taped to my fridge and I look at it every day because I never want to forget, you know, I don't want to forget where I came from because that was me 15 years ago. I didn't know which way I was up. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to eat. I didn't know where to go. Like, it's confusing. And so being able to show up for other people is a real gift.
1: And what kind of resources would you recommend to someone who has alcohol use disorder?
0: Beautiful thing about now, there's so many options, you know, and some people say like 12 steps don't work for me. I'm not religious. And what I'll say to that is it's not a religious program. It's got really bad branding in that front. And so 12 steps for me was something that was really helpful and that I really needed. Some people don't like 12 steps. There are a variety of other programs now online with like the Sober Curious movement. You can find a community online in your area. I mean, it's wonderful how many people just want to be around others, you know? And what I was at this conference a couple of weeks ago, it's a wellness longevity, like health, you know, conference and it was like Deepak Chopra was there and Dr. Mark Hyman and all these like really big innovators in health and wellness. They all, almost all of them said, the thing that we are all lacking is community and purpose. Everybody thinks that you can go take a pill or a supplement or eat green foods and drink spring water and it's going to make you live longer. And it is and sleep and all those things are helpful. But the one thing people are forgetting are community and purpose. And so as an addict and somebody that's struggling with addiction, find community and find a purpose. And I say, like, if you question your drinking, there's probably a good chance it's something worth researching because everybody's story is different. I've had people say like, your story's not that bad. You never got arrested. You never like, it was bad enough for me. It was, I, I, it was my bottom, you know, and everybody has a different bottom. My friend Charlie that I just referenced was living out of his bullet ridden forerunner, smoking crack in a hotel room. Like his story is a lot different than mine. And if I would had him just to look at, I would say like, I'm not an addict. I don't struggle like he does, but we do struggle the same. The outward manifestation of the disease is just looks a little different.
1: And community and purpose are two words I think that are universal to any sort of struggle and challenge. And it's so relatable. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's how we met,
0: right? Like, we met, hey, mama, like a community of moms. And like, how powerful is that? Getting entrepreneurial moms, helping each other out with challenges, like offering advice, you know, networking.
1: So, Hillary. What gets you out of bed every morning? Coffee. (laughs) I mean, mean, no, I
0: mean, I mean, honestly, right. And it sounds like it's eye rolling sometimes, but the desire to help other people and have them feel less alone and the desire to make my life, my child's life, the best that it can, because for me, like they say, there's the thing. It's like, to keep it, you have to give it away. To keep happiness, you have to share. To keep joy, you have to pour in others' cups. To keep kindness, you have to give it away. Like to be kind, you have to give it away. So in all of those, in all, my son would call it a bucket filler or bucket dipper. I don't know if you know this book, but I'll send it to you. So when I'm, he's mad at me, he calls me a
1: bucket dipper. Is this the book about, have you filled a bucket today? Yes. He
0: says to me the other day, he's like, I don't want to tell you this, but you're being a bucket dipper right now. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I tell him, like, me showing up for others means like my cup is full. And when my cup is full, like, I can give as much of myself, you know, to my child to make sure his cup is full too. And so I think getting out of bed with a purpose has been so great. And then the rituals that help me stay on task for that purpose have been really instrumental too. Like, waking up the same time every day, I started taking cold showers. How's that going for you? I want to say I love it. And that terrifies me because it's so cold. Nothing. I never, it's so cold. And and like, don't get me wrong. Like today was, usually I'll take a hot shower at night to like wash my hair. But today I did the whole thing, like washed my hair, bathed, all this stuff. I was there for three minutes and 23 seconds. It's the fastest like full shower I've ever taken. But I feel amazing.
1: Wow. You you know, (laughs) it sounds so terrifying, yet I am so inspired because... Your face totally lit up when you said that just now.
0: And I stand there and it's cold. And I literally this morning said to myself, I go, you do harder things every day. Just breathe. And it's like, okay. And like every time I show up for myself, it's like, it's a confidence boost, right? So if I say I'm going to do this this thing, I'm going to do it for one week. Like if I let myself down, nobody else knows, nobody else cares, but I do. And that kind of like chips away at my self-confidence and my self-esteem because if I'm not showing up for myself, I can't show up for others.
1: So try it. I will try it once and I'll let you know how it goes. No, one week. For one week. How about let me start with one day
0: and we'll (laughs) take it from
1: there. We'll take it from there. Oh God, I just got cold thinking about that. Thank you so much for those words of wisdom. I cannot thank you enough for being here with me today and talking about all of these things, for being vulnerable, for showing up for yourself, for me, for so many others. I think that this is such an important topic. I think that alcohol use disorder is such an important topic and the vernacular and your voice are going to inspire others to get the support that they need. So I gratefully thank you so much for you, for your friendship and Thank you for being here today.
0: Thank you so much, Natalie, for having me. This was such a great conversation.
1: I always have fun chatting with you. It's just in a completely different context than it has been in the past, but I am so excited that we're here together. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Over Again podcast. I hope that you learned something from today's episode. If you enjoyed this, please leave a five-star review about All Over Again on Apple Podcasts. Please also let me know what spoke to you about the episode on our social media channels at all over again podcast. I can't wait to hear from you.